Welcome to Pursuing Justice. This is our official first set of podcasts for 2023. Um, we've been on the air now, I think, for maybe the beginning of my fourth year. And today we are especially pleased to have a guest. Um, her name is Professor Margaret Burnham with us to talk about her new book, By Hands Not Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. The professor teaches law at Northeastern University in Boston, and she is the founder of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern. She was a civil rights lawyer, a defense attorney, and a judge and was nominated by President Biden to serve on the Civil Rights Cold Case Records Review Board. And we welcome her back today. Good to have you with us. Thank you. All right, so we, we began talking about your book. Um, we talked about specific cases. Um, now I want to um, switch to a few other things. Um, I want to start with the Birmingham World, which was a Black-owned newspaper edited by Emory Jackson. And he described his city as the capital of violence. The city was dealing with an epidemic of racial violence. And on pages 211 and 12, there is a list of 16 homicides, most of them occurring between March and September 1948. The verdict in nearly all these cases, justifiable homicide done by the police. To quote you, the police had a license to carry and a license to kill. Would you delve into some of these cases a little bit more in detail in this chapter? Thank you, Harriet. Uh, yes, uh, Emory Jackson was indeed one of the most uh, effective and uh, insistent and hardworking campaigners against uh, police violence in the city of Birmingham all across the 1940s. Um, he was not alone as a journalist in that regard. Most of the African-American um, newspapers covered um, these cases and especially the national pa uh, papers. The Birmingham World is, was very much a local paper, uh, but much of our material comes from um, journalists who covered these beats for the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, the Amsterdam News, um, and uh, newspapers of that sort, which were really national in scope because um, they carried, they were intended uh, to knit together and inform an Af a national African-American community, which is what they did. Uh, and so uh, all of these uh, newspapers would carry these um, stories uh, in uh, uh, Louisiana Weekly in, in, uh, out of, uh, out of, um, out of uh, New Orleans. Um, they would all carry uh, these stories in ways um, that preserved uh, accounts differing sharply from those that were provided by the white press. Uh, and so you really couldn't tell what happened unless you had access to the black newspapers that gave you a real sense of what, um, you, of, of, you know, what led to, uh, what transpired, what led to the, to the death of the African-American victim. Um, so 
we were, again, the archive was particularly yielding in this case. Uh, we, uh, one of our student researchers went down to Birmingham and was able to identify a, a set of index cards um, that were archived at the Birmingham Public Library that recorded killings of uh, individuals in Birmingham, both black and white, um, during the 1940s and on into the 1950s. Um, these were killings by police officers. Um, the file is um, shocking in that it shows that the huge uh, disproportion of killings are of African-American men. I, the numbers escape me at the moment, but over 90% African-American um, men, no, uh, no uh, white women, a very few white men uh, and some African-American women killed by the police during this period. Mm. Um, so uh, I described a number of these cases uh, in, in the, 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 excuse me, the, the file not only records the um, name of the, uh, the victim, but also the names of the police officers uh, and, um, and the determination of the authorities, whether it's a coroner's jury or a courtroom uh, as to whether the um, shootings are justified. Uh, as you say, um, the, the very few of this over a hundred uh, um, case file uh, record um, any kind of uh, determination that the officer was in the wrong, um, either through disciplinary measures or judicial measures or determination by a coroner. Those are the three ways in which you one might be able to uh, um, to um, to determine the responsibility of the officer. And there, you know, those the, those cases are virtually so few as to be virtually invisible in this file. Uh, for the most part, these are men and young men and children who African American children, young men. Uh, who are shot down by the police with virtually no, justific no justification over and over again, uh, was carrying a gun, was thought to have a gun, ran away, uh, that sort of thing. I tell the story of one young man, a young man by the name of Robert Sands, uh, who was uh, in a white neighborhood and uh, the, one of the... Uh, a residence, a white woman uh, living in the neighborhood called the cops. Um, and, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. First, she notifies her husband that there's a black boy in the neighborhood. Uh, the husband comes out and without asking any questions, ends up shooting and killing this kid. Um, so it's not only the cops, but it's also, you know, the, in this case, mm -hmm. the, the, the husband is acting in effect as a you know, protector of the neighborhood. Um, and so it's not only the cops, but it's also the fact that um, not only are they per perpetuating the violence themselves, uh, but they're uh, covering up uh, for violent acts by whites when those acts uh, seem to be associated with uh, maintaining Jim Crow rule. Um, so both things are happening. Uh, you know, they're the perpetrator, the cops are the perpetrators, uh, whether uh, active perpetration uh, as the actors or whether their participation uh, comes in other ways. Um, a question. You, you have incredible footnotes. Um, where and how do you find the documentation for 
all these cases. And it reminds me a little bit of a program I love, Finding Your Roots with uh, Henry Louis Gates, how he goes back and back uh, into areas. It's remarkable how you can find what you're looking for. So how do you do that? Well, it's there. Uh, and this is where research skills uh, are you know, put to the test. Uh, for the most part, it's there. Uh, it's often the case as well uh, that it's only serendipity that allows us to discover the documents. So in some cases, we found documents that are stored in uh, you know, in the in the second wife of a sheriff's uh, uh, who has passed away and left the left his uh, the files for the county in the garage of his old mm. house and stuff like that. You know, there's stories we could tell stories like that. Um, but the federal records are uh, are, are just a an amazing uh, resource of information. The FBI, as we well know. Um, was very, very effective in uh, recording um, uh, interviews um, that they took uh, and, and, and oftentimes quite thorough. That's not to say, uh, it, it can't be gainsaid, let me put it this way, that the FBI brought its own biases to these cases. Uh, these are local people, local FBI agents. In other words, they're born and raised in the communities where they're serving um, as bureau agents. Uh, and so obviously that, that affects their ability to see clearly where injustice has taken place and where it hasn't. Um, but they did record, you know, names, dates, places, and that sort of thing. So the DOJ records are a tremendous source. We could not have done this work uh, 15 years ago. Uh, because we didn't have then, um, the, the newspapers were not digitized, Ancestry was not, you know, the robust resource that it is today for, in, in terms of our ability to find um, the descendants of these individuals and to incorporate, uh, partner with them and incorporate their work uh, in our research. Um, so, um, so, you know, in part, it's, this is new research. Uh, new, new, it's newly available, uh, but it's been out there all the time. It's just been newly available and now made accessible to the general public through the archive that Professor Chancellor Nobles and I have mm. launched called the Burnham Nobles Digital Archive, which one can find at crrjarchive.org, um, crrjarchive.org, uh, which holds all of the documents we've collected including the family interviews, the DOJ, FBI records, the local records, the newspaper files, they're all there. Mm, that's impressive. And I expect, uh, Harry, just let me add that I expect yeah. that this will generate new research. I would think. Um, that there will be new avenues um, that can be pursued now that the materials are collected in one place. And also not only new research, but that also it will help um, journalists who are interested in learning the history, uh, learning about this particular angle of their locale's history. Right. I'm sure there's much, much more uh, there than even you were able to find. I, I, I would think, wouldn't you think that 
there's even more cases uh, that you haven't found. What oh, of course, of yeah, course. I would. Think. I mean, the the the, the um, accidental nature of some of our discoveries. I opened the book with the story of a woman who, um, whose case really disappears um, from uh, from history. Um, her name is Hunter. Um, yeah, and uh, she the, that case and many others suggest that you, this some of this is is indeed unknowable. Mm -hmm. Some of this will will never really fully uh, fully I'm, recover. I'm, yeah, but you've done a remarkable remarkable job in terms of your your research. Your book is divided into seven different parts. Part six is called abduction. And I, I just want to read a quote from your book. Kidnapping disappeared as a crime when it came to the black victim. Whites had a legal right to do a legal wrong. Can you explain that? And there is an example I, I wrote down about the Burl Jones case, but you can go back and explain what that quote really was about. So Thank you for the question, Harriet. So when I say that uh, whites had a legal right to do a legal wrong, I'm comparing this to uh, a well-known principle in the law that certain uh, offense, certain uh, acts that would otherwise be deemed uh, to be violative of the law are um, excused or are overlooked, I shall, should I say, um, in in certain circumstances, uh, and so these are these are called immunities, right? So it's essentially an, your, your immunity from crime. So, for example, if uh, police officers commit a um, constitutional violation, uh, the law provides certain immunities so they they won't be um, they uh, they not won't be subject to civil remedies. Uh, for their acts because they are police officers and you want to give them uh, some scope and some uh, an arena to uh, to air uh, and to use their own discretion. So <clears throat> these are immunities. And what I say here is that the law, in effect, created an immunity for whites for the crime of kidnapping, that the law was so that the, kid, the crime of kidnapping was so rarely enforced when it was a white person kidnapping or abducting a black person that you could in effect say whites were immune uh, from prosecution for that crime. Uh, the Emmett Till case is uh, really a primary example here. Uh, you'll, you, I'm sure all, everyone will recall that Till was kidnapped from his uncle's home in Money, Mississippi, uh, and then, of course, lynched and killed and left in the river in the in the river. Um, but the kidnapping crime was not prosecuted. The murder was prosecuted. The kidnapping was not. And uh, and I say and use a number of examples that that's true across the legal landscape. Uh, whites would snatch African Americans from their home, their places of work take them um, anywhere they wish to take them um, and uh, oftentimes, you know, Im impose punishments on them. Uh, and the, these crimes were not prosecuted. They simply were not prosecuted. 
And so in, here I'm asking the question, well, why? What, what was it? Uh, uh, you know, obviously Jim Crow, you know, these, these the easy explanations. But here I look at history to think about what it was that left prosecutors with the impression um, that it was not a crime to, 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 kid, to abduct a black person. And I take this case back to slavery and I say, essentially, black uh, individuals had no rights not to go uh, where any white person demanded they go, whether free or enslaved, um, in pre-1865. pre, pre, pre And in as much as that was the, the legal rule and the legal practice and the norm in that earlier period, that carries over into the 19th century and then into the 20th century. The case I use is that of Burl Jones, who is kidnapped in 1963 or 1962, 1963 um, in uh, Mississippi, Southwest Mississippi, um, and um, uh, whipped in, in the woods in Southwest Mississippi, federal, federal property, whipped and then released, um, whipped within an inch of his life, released, he, he um, never prosecuted. And the Burl Jones case is one that I know because uh, I interviewed Burl Jones and uh, developed a relationship with him, an attorney-client relationship. Uh, well, I interviewed him uh, for a case that I was involved uh, with, uh, but um, I cite a number of other cases in Southwest Mississippi that where, where uh, essentially uh, the same rule, i.e. white immunity from the uh, crime uh, of kidnapping uh, it prevailed. And I use Southwest Mississippi again as an exemplar, uh, but I suggest also in that chapter that this is true across the South. Uh, and I look at other cases as well. Uh, Wasn't um, a factor the people's um, involvement in the NAACP and that um, the whites wanted to silence them and try to disconnect them from their involvement in the uh, NAACP. And so if they took them away and they never came back, that's a pretty strong message. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, certainly that was the case in a number of the Southwest Mississippi cases. Um, that I described the, the, the Royal Jones cases out of Franklin County, Mississippi, which was also the site of a kidnapping that ended up in a lynching in 19, as late as 1964. Um, in, a, in, uh, in that case, the Charles Moore and uh, Henry Hezekiah D, two young men, 19-year-old young men kidnapped by the Klan, uh, and, and, and that case was ne not prosecuted until many, many years later. Uh, but the other cases, that case and others, uh, are, are all uh, sort of um, in, intended to strike fear uh, mm -hmm. in the hearts of a Af of, of res resisting African-American community, whether that resistance is, you know, sort of classic NAACP work or whether it's more radical uh, resistance, or uh, you know, in the in the uh, Henry 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 Hezekiah D case out of Franklin County, as well as in uh, the uh, Emmett Till case, uh, these these young men are targeted because they've traveled to the north, or they have a connection with the north, and that's thought to be a source of um, uh, perhaps a, a you know a source of 
information, basically. They know something. They've seen freedom. Um, they might act on that. Right, right. The final chapter of your book is titled Redress. You mentioned that Ger Germany has, in part, come to terms with and acknowledged its ugly past wherein the Holocaust is concerned. I just watched the Burns documentary on our role in the Holocaust, the United States. I'd like you to close, we have about five minutes left, um, and tell us about reparations, redress, remedies for all that occurred that we've been talking about during this interview, during the era you focus on in the book. My focus is quite narrow. The reparations claim uh, in the U.S. And, and indeed globally is a broad claim. Uh, it's a claim that the uh, wrongs uh, visited upon people of color uh, based on, you know, colonial powers uh, and on the atrocities of slavery and those that followed at Jim Crow uh, deserve redress. Uh, and that that redress uh, needs to uh, be composed of um, apology, atonement, and, and, and perhaps material redress as well. Uh, uh, within that broad claim for uh, redress, I argue that there is a set of victims uh, that is uh, particularly deserving uh, and, and that their claim uh, is a particularly strong one. And those are the individuals uh, whose cases I've discussed in this book and those like them. I don't cover every case in the book, obviously. Right. Uh, and as you have said, many of those cases will never be uncovered. Uh, but I, I make the claim that th this particular category of um, the victims slash survivors is uh, not only worthy and deserving, uh, but the time uh, is, is, is passing uh, in which we can make uh, some sort of uh, um, some some sort of um, uh, amends uh, for what uh, they suffered because of the uh, inadequacies uh, generated by race of our judicial system. They were entitled to hearings. They were entitled uh, to fair juries. Um, they were entitled to uh, even-handed and aggressive prosecutions. They got none of that. Uh, instead, they got the back of the hand, uh, both from local officials and from federal officials. Uh, it's time to uh, change all that. And right. so uh, that's my argument here. Um, that's a, it's a narrow one with respect to this very narrow class of victims. Right. Um, there, there were the three questions that you list. Uh, what is the injury? Uh, what is the redress? And who bears responsibility for rectification there. They certainly give us something to think about. That's, that's for sure. I, I like the thought that you um, include from Richard Benda to make, uh, <clears throat> this is a quote, to make sense of life's journey, one must simultaneously check the rear view mirror, the windshield, and the side mirrors. It's the rear view mirror that insists on defining the road ahead. How do we bring justice to the families of these victims who paid with their lives decades ago? Yes, uh, Richard Bender, thank you so much for lifting up that quote. Richard Bender <laughs> is just a wonderful 
um, scholar and activist uh, in Rwanda, and I've learned just so much from him. Uh, and yes, uh, yeah, I didn't talk about uh, Rwanda because obviously the issues that they face uh, uh, overcoming uh, or dealing with, I should say, contending with dealing with um, the genocide there is just also um, so important in uh, the history of, uh, in the current uh, movement to uh, to repair the past, although there's a far more recent past. Uh, yeah. And so I think uh, this book is the beginning of an effort to tell the stories, mm. uh, to put their, um, put their accounts uh, on the pages of history. Uh, and that has not been done uh, to the extent that I've done it here. I must say that, that my colleagues and I, uh, Professor Nobles and I, uh, have done it. Um, there's an expression in the African-American community, oh, you there's so many bodies buried in the water. Well, uh, I take the position, it's not good enough to say their bodies buried in the water. We, we need to know, uh, you know who they, to the extent that we can, who. You know they are not um, they are not at rest, uh, and uh, it's up to us uh, when we now have the the tools um, and 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 when we're in, engaged in a national reckoning around our racial history, racial past, and uh, and our futurity um, as a uh, as an American people that has to move forward together. Um, it's for us uh, to uh, to figure out uh, how we can. Uh, lift up these cases and make them uh, meaningful, not just to complete our understanding of the past, but also to help point the way to a, a better future. Beautiful. That's so exactly right. Well, we could go deeper with these topics for many hours. I thank you so much for helping us to think about the Jim Crow era in a unique way. I encourage my listeners to read your book and share its ideas with others. And I guess that's another way of remembering those people who paid with their lives is to read about them and to tell others. I think that that's a good beginning. Please join me next time when we speak to Chris Fabricant from the Innocence Project about his new book, Junk Science. And I wanna thank Professor Burnham again for taking her precious time and spending it with us today. Thank you. Thank we'll you very you, much. We'll see you next time on Pursuing Justice. This Thank is you. Harriet Handel. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.